Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. You were defeated, left for dead. All is ashes. Your heart stirs, your broken body numbing with the rage of retaliation. Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliation, a new board game set in the world of darkness created by the same team behind Vampire the Masquerade Chapters. Flyups, imagination leaping ahead. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Werewolf 5th edition. Um, really, I should say that this is really Werewolf the Apocalypse. It's a reboot uh, brought to us, uh, released by um, Renegade Studios with, uh, obviously, Paradox with the IP and some of the lovely authors we know and love. Uh, but before I get into this, I just sort of want to say it is just me today. So right now, if if you're looking for, for DJ or Mike or anybody else, I decided to tackle this alone. Reason is, is for integrity purposes. Um, on Patreon, we reviewed this for our for our patrons, and I have uh, I did a version of this with with Mike and DJ, and I decided that it was it was too acidic. It, it wasn't it wasn't where I wanted to go, and that sort of gives you an idea and insight into how the team collectively feels about this book. I always feel that when somebody buys something or somebody endorses something in this hobby, it should not be completely ruined or reduced. To you should have valid feed forward whenever you have what's going on. And I feel that the negative initial two recordings that we did was, was just not where it needed to be. Um, the fact is, is that you folks might want to listen to that, might want to hear that you think you do, but the fact is there's enough of this in the message boards before we even open up this text uh, to, to showcase the company doesn't want to be looked at that way. You don't want your hobby to be looked at that, at that way. And at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is to make a tangible bedrock to tell a different story of werewolf the apocalypse it's that simple and they have a different perspective a different view and thus a different take and it is a, it is a new group of people so i think they do have that uh that initial right and we know this because their disclaimer if you're familiar with previous editions of werewolf let us be upfront and state that this fifth edition is a reimagining not a continuation i'll repeat that this fifth edition is a reimagining not a continuation you can even call it a reboot if you prefer. I prefer to call it a reboot because that's a moronic statement in my opinion. Calling this Werewolf Fifth Edition, it's it's not if it's not a continuation, then it is not a new edition. Right? We gotta we gotta be upfront and clear about that. A lot of you have stated that I agree with that. The dictionary agrees with that. It's just regardless of what their feelings were, their disclaimer doesn't take that off the hook. However, a reboot, yes. And that's what we're gonna refer to this as is a reboot. Keep you in that mindset. The truths and lore of previous editions aren't necessarily true in this edition. In fact, none of it is necessarily true by the way their writing is, and you'll see that as we as we go into this. But they say take this book in the world it proposes at face value. Now, with that said, that means that we can go through this and look at this book, and if you bought it, have no expectations. 
have no expectations and you cannot be disappointment disappointed is what that means. I'm going to be upfront with you. This book is not going to please werewolf fans. If you're a fan of Werewolf the Apocalypse of previous editions and its previous writing, this book completely took from those old editions, but claims that it's a reimagining. It's a reboot. They took all that and they said they could do it better. That's what a reimagining is. We found a different direction, a different way to go about it that we think you will like. And that's all this book is. On its own, as a statement, I would say that would be fine. Except this means that this book is majority, excuse me, majorly, I don't know why I keep trying to make that a word. The majority of this book is taken from previous editions and lore, even rules. And they just slapped it in this book to the mechanics of a fifth edition look. That's all this book is, folks. Take this as that. That's exactly what it is. After reading all of it, the majority is that, which means their effort does not match what they claim in their disclaimer. Let's look at an official reboot or reimagining. That means you're going to fundamentally change the lore and the way things, and really not the mechanics only. Mechanics can change from edition to edition as we've seen. That doesn't matter. It's the lore that matters. The lore has to change for a reboot, for a reimagining. And you got to have some, something so good that it holds up to what came before. And if you don't have something that holds up to what it came before, then at least have the decency to cut it and make a difference. And say that this is Werewolf the Apocalypse. This is Werewolves in the Apocalypse, straight up. And that's what it is. And in that regard, this means anything you're currently reading is now changes made to the fundamental stuff that happened before. That's not what this is, and they want to make a clean break. If you think about the disclaimer I read to you and about what they attempted to do, they're trying to, well, they're trying to muzzle everybody. And and, and honestly, there's no better way to put that. They're trying to say, you have no argument because we already told you we have a disclaimer. We have a disclaimer, blah, blah, blah. That's what that says. Now, whatever you may think as we go through this book, I say this in the beginning just just to deal with that. And that's my honest opinion. I feel the disclaimer is a bit insulting. I feel it does not hold up to what they said this book would be and would not be. And that's my opinion. Anybody else who gets this book, you can have a softer heart to it. But I prefer not to be insulted when I read a book. The whole time we were told this was going to be a werewolf that that honors the material before, worth being called a fifth edition. And, and then we were told, nope, here's a disclaimer. Deal with it. To me. That, that is a red flag in, in any sort of IP. I'm a fan of this IP. It's unfair that you discount those that came before and the fans who loved it before. Just so you could say, my writing's now valid because we said so. No, your writing should be valid because it's unique. It's interesting. It has volume, meaning room for volume, that you have a plan to release more that will titillate, give something to look forward to, and inspire people to want to stick with you financially, to loyally stick with your IP. That's what it should do. Um, I know this does not do that. This does not do that. It offers some interesting looks at it, but really it just feels like somebody homebrewed the previous, the previous editions and said, this is ours now. And that's exactly what you have. So stop beating that horse. We'll roll on. This uh, dives into what the apocalypse truths are. Um, right from the book, it says, Werewolves have the ability to take numerous forms on a spectrum from Lupine to Hominid. Didn't change it. In fact, they call their words of Hominid, Hominid. 
Werewolves belong to multiple worlds, spirit and flesh, human and wolf. It doesn't really change, except for the fact that they're not accepted by either of them. Werewolves are feared and mistrusted by each of the worlds to which they partially belong. That's interesting. Um, feared and mistrusted by each of the worlds is... Uh, well, let's just say that uh, that doesn't really paint the picture of those who are defending the guy you're used to. That, in other words, that, all, that right there tells me it's going in a different direction, and I, and I hope it does for you, too. Um, werewolves are creatures of rage, forever at risk of losing control of themselves. I dig that. Werewolves are charged by, or charged with an unreliable greater purpose by Gaia. That's that's rough, right? Right now they're saying that uh, you had absolute trust in Gaia before, but in the reimagining they're saying it was always unreliable greater purpose. Because the spiritual entity known as Gaia is inherently unknowable, and we, we're not even certain it's a she. Werewolves consider the worm a primal force of entropy and decay, to be the chief threat to Gaia. And much of Guru existence has spent confronting its agents. So what you need to understand, though, is that already they said, if Gaia is unreliable and it's a spiritual entity who we don't know, you know, it's inherently unknowable, then what is the worm? And how can we say that the worm is the actual source of entropy and decay? Well, that is because the viewpoint you have to take is they're saying werewolves, they're more human than, you, than they in previous editions. They're opening the mind to the fact that werewolves are more intelligent. Let me help you out with this. It's a zeitgeist. Let's just say from the 80s and 90s, let's look at that perspective. In the 80s and 90s, before you had the internet everywhere at the touch of your hand, people could say whatever they want. People could say whatever they want, and shit floats as it said. That was the old adage that went with it. What that meant is, is that if you could talk a good game, if somebody could actually speak um, a mile a minute or whatever you want to call it and, and could... Uh, they could wow you with a good story, you know, gift of gab, then it must be true because they sound intelligent, they come across as charismatic, and therefore it works. That was then. Now, in our era, in 2023, that doesn't work, Jack. You start talking some facts, there are already 15 people in earshot looking up anything, looking for anything on the internet that you're saying that would hold to any truth. And now we got AIs. We got AIs you can directly type in, and they will let us know if you have any iota of truth to what you're saying 100%. So our cues are sharper. They're trying to write to this zeitgeist by saying in the apocalypse, which is where we're at with the werewolves, and we'll get to that in one second, the werewolves are the human half anyway, are in the now. They're thinking in the now. They are analyzing what has happened before, what the old ways were, and looking at those traditions and how did we get here, what happened to cause where we're at, and what are we going to do now that we're, where we're here? What is it we're going to accomplish? That's the mindset of the werewolf now. The wolf in them is just the power. It's that simple. I'll tell you, I me mean, looking at it and reading, it just feels like they're just writing that that's the power they got. They don't really know about it. And what I mean by that is they know they got this rage. They know that they shape change. They know they're attached to the spirit world. But the spirit world and therefore their werewolf half, that actual wolf half, is something terrifying. Right? To, to their human mind. Because whether you're human first or lupine first or lupus first, that would be the perspective. Just as a lupus view is terrified of what it is suddenly to be human. Right, be able to shape change into that, understand those senses and world. So too is it for humans to think about that spiritual half, where the wolves have an even harder time, honestly, because a wolf is just a wolf in the world, which is scary, and it's the apocalypse. Then they have the spirit world that is also unknowable and unchanging. They don't have a guaranteed bond and relationship with it anymore. Um, that's what's changed. Now, what do werewolves do then? 
if that's a situation guy is unknowable, what is it they're about? Well, the most immediate things that worlds do is that they fight to take back what has been lost. The apocalypse has happened or is happening, depending on your viewpoint as that werewolf. But over the course of the story, werewolves are building their own legend. That's what it's about. Renown is more than ever critically important to the guru. It represents the deeds they've accomplished that have value in world society, and it represents uh, spirits. They're, they're esteemed for them, and uh, their willingness to help them perform special gifts and rites. So in other words, the more that a world does in renown and honor of renown, it builds on their legend. The bigger their legend gets, the more spirits are willing to help them. The more faith they have, this world can do things that trust is established, so more, more power is led to them. More rights are known to them, um, and they're willing to empower those for them. Um, it is said that the greatest guru don't die, but in fact live on as spirits themselves and practically become the legends they have made for themselves. Now, that becomes interesting. What this says is that there's now a transcendence that werewolves are striving towards. They don't call it transcendence, but is that not what it is? We're striving to become legends ourselves and to become the spirits that we were emulating, that we were doing it, to join that spiritual half. Now, why is that? Well, we're at the end of days, right? In, in another light, I believe it would be the equivalent of Valhalla isn't promised to anyone. It has to be earned. In that movie trope that we understand Vikings to be. I put it there because I know a lot of folks were like, hey, Vikings weren't like that, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Pause that historical part. Go with what movies tell you and what books have been written about, uh, fiction that is, and you'll begin to understand where this comes from. As a work of fiction, they're saying the worlds are in the same plight. They know of a place that they can ascend to, that the spirit world is real, and they're trying to join that. They're trying to make sure they can get there because Gaia is dead or dying. And this is the end for them because that purpose they had isn't the purpose they were fulfilling. And that's where they're at. So now it's what are you going to do to make it known that you're worthy of transcending and hitting that level? What can you do? That is the core of the game now. That's where it is. And it's hard to do. And there's a lot they got to do to get that done. And to get into it, I want to start with a bad point, actually. Uh, why bad first is because this comes from Mike. Um, Mike made the strongest contention in multiple recordings, and I, I'm glad we got him down to a point of calm. But it was the fact that the and I want to state this. I do mean a fact of calm. Um, Mike and, and DJ and, and the team were incredibly likable guys. We're calm. We, we like to give everything its day in the sun. But Mike felt that he was insulted across the board with this book, like somebody was writing to deliberately piss him off. Like they wanted to say that he was a simpleton. And that's what he kept doing. That every, every, every sentence, every time he read a big bracket of a couple pages that was uh, a watered down, reworded version that was written more concisely to fit like a page, a page limit or a letter limit in a book that was just old material that they put in the book reworded, he, you, you got to him. And I can understand that because he paid money. He paid money. He's a college student, he's a lawyer. Right. That's what I mean. He's he's pursuing to finish his law and he's at the end of it and he's seeing the debt pile up. He's working full time at home, double shifts, everything still has time to do this. And in his research, when he reads these books, it's supposed to be fun. This is the first book he really wasn't having fun reading because it just felt that he had waste. He'd read this before. And if he already read it before, why is he reading it again? And why isn't it enough of a difference to matter? And when he found a difference, which is the point of where I started this, 
This is what he got stuck on, and that's the cult of Fenris. He's it's one of his favorite tribes, and I can understand it's a lot of people. But off the bat, they tell you that the cult of Fenris is itself but a single facet of a greater tribe pledged to Wolf. But the cult raised its collective voices louder, and those pledged to Wolf either joined them or found membership among the other tribes. So I need to help you understand this. This cult of Fenris might have been, once upon a time, called something else. But what they wanted to do was get rid of the get of Fenris and, and they reimagine it because, honestly, people had claimed there was a fence taken to an entire book written on a Scandinavian mythos. And, and that was that. And, and I, would, I would discount it completely. There was definitely Norse things in there. But that's because the people, here's the problem. The people originally wrote Your Werewolf the Apocalypse, they had a strong understanding of what they were borrowing to make a fiction, to have fun, to play in a game. That's the era they wrote it in, and that's what they did. That's where they stuck it. However, people bought the IPs of this and read it and went, I'm highly offended. I can't believe that real descendants of Vikings let let there be a werewolf tribe walking around with big hammers and having things, and that they have they have this giant Fenris wolf, and and oh my god, they don't even understand what Fenris did. Fenris wasn't good; he was this evil, McBad, nasty thing that you know, Ragnarok. They don't even understand it. They don't even get to what it is, you know. And then and then they open the door to looking at it as kind of a historical doctrine, which is a mistake. It is a mistake. That is not what you do in fiction. You don't, nobody looks at Captain Planet and tries to ridicule it because it's so far removed from what the Druids wanted, right? Back in ancient times, what the Druids wanted. Captain Planet, he's our hero. That's because it's fictitious. Captain Planet doesn't exist. He's not supposed to, right? It's, it's designed to teach you a story, to teach you an analogy, a way to be, however you want to put that. And that's it. And it, and it did its job because there was more kids I know recycling Remember Captain Planet than anything else. And that's what they should do. Why I picked Captain Planet, in fact, is because that's what I referred to players of Werewolf, the old apocalypse. Is that It's really all they are. Fly around, defend the ecosystem, you're an eco-terrorist, or you're a servant of Captain Planet who gives you permission. Captain Planet is Gaia, right? That's more or less what I went to with the joke. Didn't take away the fact that I like playing the game. Didn't take away the fact that you could. But I'm going to help you understand what happened with each and every tribe that you know and love and why a company today, this company, felt they had to go to such extravagant lengths and where they ultimately failed in making it an enjoyable difference. Here's what goes on. The original Get of Fenris, as by design, they highlight the fact that the Get of Fenris is these tough, believing in strength, and strength has defined whatever that is. In other words, whatever talent is in you, that you were great at. The former Get a Finish tribe respected, if you were the best sewer that they ever had, I mean sewing, I mean creating cloth, garments, um, textile expert. If you were a textile expert and you were the best at it, then you are Fenris. You are Fenris worthy. You are perfect at it. That is your strength. That is what you do. And you don't back down from it. And that's the point. They were hard about it. They loved that. They respected that in themselves. And it teaches a lesson. Everybody should find that one thing they're great at and be amazing at it because that's what your purpose is and what you were here to do. That's straight up what their point was. It's read that way out of the tribe book. They used to give them these um, these weaknesses, so-called, for the tribes. And if you look at it, they had to pick what offended them. 
Now, what they did was they wrote in there perfectly, beautifully, I'd say, with the weaknesses of this tribe, that whatever their strength is, whatever that one thing they're good at, odds are it's going to create an opposite. And intolerance is what they called it. So whatever one thing you were good at, you were intolerant of another. And that became the whole point of role-playing a get. You knew you were playing a get well if you had that strength and that intolerance. Now, it just so happens that the get are really good at fighting. Because obviously, if we're perfectionists and that's our craft and that's what we do, then we're good at fighting. Whether it's oratory, debate, whether it's brawling, whether it's tooth and claw, whether it's playing chess, no matter what it was, they competed and they were great at it and they were the top at it. And that's what they did. That's what they had. That was the wolf in them. That was always what the get offenders were. That's pre anything. They were top prime competitors. It is in nature that way as well. They have a natural understanding of who is great and who is less, but all have a purpose in life, in circles of life. That's the point. So if you were a born wolf pack, this is, this is pre-anything else, and you're out there, the strongest amongst you is the alpha because they're the ones best to defend us. And they're the ones to actually copy because their, their skill is what we're looking for. Now, that alpha defends us. They may be a good hunter, but they may not be too good at hunting. They may need help tracking. They may need help doing a lot of other things. And everyone in the pack serves a purpose towards that. And that's how it goes. But they do it naturally and understand it. That was the point of choosing wolf packs is that the players would get to each play a role that was important to the pack. That's how it goes. So the Geta Fenris, they encounter, they needed a group of people because they point out in time the Get are evolving, right? Like everybody else, they're spreading out and getting into the world. They're, the humans aren't all one group of humans. Right, So the werewolves weren't all one group of werewolves anymore. So as the humans went far and wide, the wolves followed. And these wolves chose to follow only those worthy of them following them. They had that in their head. Remember, an intolerance of, of, that, of that weakness, that's as they call it, to whatever strength they had at the moment. And, or that they emulated, depending on the leader or whoever. And so they collectively followed a particular group of humans. And those humans gravitated toward what became the Germanic... Scandinavian territories. Now, why they chose to stay there, they say flat out that these people were hardy. They lived in a land that promoted nothing but strength. It was cold there most of the time. They had to live out of the ocean. In other words, they had to master another environment. It wasn't just lush forest and planting. They couldn't just farm and live because that would promote a weakness. They would be so close to each other that inevitably they would have to fight and battle for territory. That fit the wolf mindset perfectly. Because only the strongest should have the territory and the weaker should get in line. Not that they're not worth it, but if you're not as strong as your leader, then that means you follow. That's as they saw it. And they saw that those territories would do that and that's what happened. Those people understood that almost naturally. The important thing is, is that to them, they were impressed and need to go no farther than what they found. They wanted somewhere that challenged them. They wanted a people worthy of their blood and they found one. And that's, that's it. That's, that's, that's the Scandinavian connection. That's why they chose them. They weren't called there by Odin. They weren't none of that. None of that. However, the religion that was there over centuries is going to change the, the aspect and outlooks of the tribe. And so you see that added, added to the get of Fenris. So the spirit that gravitated to them was the idea of this great wolf, a wolf that has been known to be called Fenrir. Now, why did it change? You have to understand spirits to get that. Now, amazingly, where if the apocalypse, this book, Helps you understand that stronger connection. But their, their clarification to help you get how spirits work comes from the old material. It's just you, the reader, had to read a couple different books to get that. 
this book, you can get it in one. That's what they did. That is the switch difference, which is a good one. And to add that clarity and make it concise, how did the tribe become known as the Geta Fenris? How did the Fenris will find them and what happened? Well, they shaped it. A collective belief from the humans they were commingling their blood with and each generation of werewolf or get of these wolves that were coming out, they were emulating the religion that was driving a driving force in them at the time. And we all know that religion, right? It was Norse based. And because of that, Odin, harshness of Odin, you had uh, talks of Thor and Loki and everything else. Naturally, you would have Fenris come into the picture. To a werewolf, to the wolf, of course, Fenris would be the, the focal point out of all of that. And that's why you don't see Odin, Loki, or any of the other guys, because those are human-based. They have no bearing to it, but the wolf understood, and this explains to you the dual nature of werewolves, that their half-spirit and spiritual connection shaped and drew a spirit to them that emulated the great things they were looking for, and that entity became its own. So just like a werewolf gains renown and can become legend, the spirit world, the umbra, reflects this call. This urgency. So if the emotions are great and the rights are done, and these were brutal, bloody rights done at some occasions and violence that, that perpetrated a lot of religious pursuits here, um, that creates a spirit, they're saying. That all that created an entity that stepped forward that these wolves could get into. And this wolf came from them. So what does that mean? It means that the Fenris wolf is just one aspect of what wolf is. And this is interesting to me. This book does not give wolf to everybody, right? It mentions it, in fact, in, in fact for the cult of Fenris. Fenris had wolf, they followed wolf. They basically just say it's wolf. They don't even define it. But they should have defined it because they should have said this very important thing because their omission makes you have to see it for what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you right now, this is exactly how it is. This wolf that appeared is a spirit entity called wolf. It's a response to urgency from a whole nation of werewolves that are looking for a top wolf to follow because they feel that instant, instinctively. A bunch of traits. This particular tribe of wolves, this great tribe, needed one that emulated what they believed in, what they saw, and what they felt. And the zeitgeist of that time was Norse. And because of that, and it was a strong one, by the way, and lasts even to this day, that is where it came from. And when this wolf stepped up, it had the tough, harsh North feeling to it that everybody actually likes. Believe it or not, I have yet to hear a person say they don't like Thor from Marvel, that they don't like the Norse pantheon in fiction, that they don't enjoy the show Vikings. That stuff is just good writing. It's good and entertaining to read. And you, they got that from all they got it from the Vikings. They wrote about it. Right. That's where that stuff came from. Even even the people who have chosen different media to make it sensational, they didn't come up with it. It is these actual historical Vikings who had these wonderful Edda and poetry that they that they wrote about and emulated from their religious beliefs. To, to enjoy life a bit more. This is, or it might even be just their way of doing fiction. And because of that, that's where the game got the idea, hey, let's make this tribe and call them Geta Fenris. Because that seems pretty cool. If you're a group of werewolves sitting around emulating, the, you know, and you're from the, these people, Scandinavian people in this era, this time, these are traditions you could hold to, and this whole tribal structure would survive to the modern. They could tough it out out there and be badasses from it, and that's what the old Geta Fenris were. But they discovered some problems, didn't they? Let's rifle through what fans were allegedly screaming was so terrible. They had the sword of Heimdall. Hang on. You're going to develop a fanatic group. People who emulate strength are going to misunderstand that. And they're going to think a cleansing and a purity needs to be there. 
And they're, they're completely wrong, by the way. If you are strong and a good leader, if you are good at something and you're the best at something, you have a duty to be the best at it, to show everybody else how to get it done. But to help them. You're the best to show technique because the only way you get to be the best is through practice. Constant and consistent practice and execution of your craft. The more you do, the better you get at it. The better you get at it, the better you can stand up there and say you're the best. Now, when you're up there, you don't need to say you're the best. In fact, if you say you're the best, you're not. That's just ego. But everyone will let you know when you're better than them. And enough people do it, you eventually just accept what they say you are. And that's why I say, keep humble. When you're humble, you turn around and help everybody. Right? Raise all the ships. That's what you're meant to do. Because that's what a leader does. You lead by example, and those who follow serve in that excellence, that communal excellence that you helped create, in fact, that you pioneered. That's exactly what the Geta Fenris say. If we are the strongest tribe, then all the other tribes know what they should do. And if you can beat us, do so. What's wrong with that? What they are doing is laying the claim that if we are competing for top, then compete for the top. But you must be better than me to be top. And if you are not, then you simply aren't. And you should get behind me when it comes to doing the thing that I do best. That was the get of Fenris. Other tribes said they needed to relax and that's okay. And that's how you create conflict. But you need to understand that tribe before you can say, oh, but the Sword of Heimdall came in and they were Nazis. Yeah. And you know what their tribe said? Kill them. The get of Fenris have these camps as any group of social things are going to develop. A group of people who decided we're going to purify what the get of Fenris are. We're so into this Norse pantheon that we believe you have to be Norse-blooded, super Aryan, and all this other nonsense that comes from the Nazis. They got corrupted. They got corrupted because the Nazis existed. That's the head, that's the head nod to it. You know, look at Germany. Not all Germans were Nazis. In fact, a small group of them, and this is the problem, a small group that you ignore can become a mighty group because it get caught on due to popularity. Humans are that way. This is what happened to the Nazis. This is what happened within the Geta Fenris. A sort of Heimdall started and got to be a large enough group that when they were going around started calling people in the name of Hitler and worse, uh, the tribe came back and said, okay, if you say that you need to purify the tribe, I happen to be uh, not only Jewish blooded, right? That's, that's my descendancy. I come from Israel, but I was, uh, my family are descendants from Israel, but we were born in this land and we are Norse blooded because my father is, my mother isn't, but I am the child of them and I'm a get Fenris. And you say you must purify me? then it sucks for you. I'm the reigning champion of whooping ass with this here hammer. So how about you step in and we're going to fight and you don't got a choice. You're claiming your blood is stronger and it's going to be there. I'm coming to find out because Fenris demands it. There can't be two of us. One of us is full of shit and we're going to find out. And the whole tribe did that. And this, this sort of Heimdall was like, no, no, no. We were just, you know, Nazis are cool. They're going to take over the war. And the Nazis got defeated and they were cleansing, straight up killing the Sword of Heimdall. That was the point. The Sword of Heimdall was the villain because the villain from within stood up and challenged their ways and they got stomped on. They're supposed to be wiped out. They were written that way. That is the way they come across and that's there. But people hyper focused on it being in a book didn't read the book well, and were decried. Now, why the Get a Fenris are decried? Because there's a lot of people who don't understand that tribe. They don't understand and don't want to, and flat out, they're intimidated. They're intimidated that they have to rise to this challenge of being their best, and they don't believe they have their best. And that own self-pity leads to a hate after a time. 
And that's all they did. And that is a negative connotation. But that's not what the writers put there. That's what those who read the book decided it was going to be. And even by those, I mean, like, probably 10 people who are overactive on a forum. But that's enough when they do it enough to cause a, a sticking point for a company that now has to write about this, get offenders and decide, yeah, it's really popular. But there's, there's a lot of people saying we got to get, you know, neutral and woke and we can't do this. So I guess we got to start taking down everything that was cool and trying to find a cool way to re-represent it. I know what we could do. Let's keep the essence of what they are and provide a cult of Fenris that use the wolf because we're getting rid of the idea of the Fenrir wolf anyway, at least for the moment. And we're going to say it's just the wolf they were following, a version of this great wolf. And this... Great tribe um, gets it's gets wiped out from within because what we're saying is the cult of Fenris is so strong that they convince or kill those to be a part of them as they approach the rest of the Guru Nation to make a demand. And that demand is this, that in the apocalypse, we failed and Guy is dead, so we have to do something. That something is, we got to go and jump into the maw of the worm and kill it from within, annihilate it, face it in one glorious combat. If all the Guru right now get together and do that, they will die. Now. Mike's problem with this is, didn't we already do this? Yes, we did. They're called the White Howlers. Yes, that's, that's exactly what it is. That's also probably where the cult of Fenris got its idea, is that that's what came before. However, here's the fun part about it. Your black spiral dancers exist. Their origin story really doesn't change. So this means there's a precedent. Or is there a cycle? And what they're saying in the apocalypse is that it's, it's a cycle. That there are tribes who give in to this idea that we're either losing or they need to stand up and now's the time. In other words, let's, let's call it what it is. It takes a great arrogance to decide that if we do what I say and you follow what I say, we can go forth and win the battle right now. All that you are, if everybody comes with me, we can go take out what the big bad is and call it a day. Now. Why didn't that work with the White, with, with White Howlers and the Black Spiral Dancers? You already know. They went down there and got corrupted. They were tricked into dancing the spiral. They didn't survive that mental test and challenge and will and became something else entirely. They were driven insane, and that's what they serve now as the worm. Wah, wah. These cult defenders said that wouldn't happen to us if we all unite. United in purpose, we would just annihilate them. They have a big move. And all the tribes said, cool, our champions will meet your champions and we'll fight it out. But if we win, you get back in line. Well, they didn't win. The cult of Fenris won and won the right to break free from the tribes to leave. And they're called the Fallen Tribe because they used to be the great tribe of an unknown name. Now they're just the cult of Fenris. And what the cult of Fenris is doing is attacking the Guru Nation. So what they do is they attack the Guru Nation to say, you come with us to avenge Gaia or you die. You convert now or fall forever. And that's the only option you're giving them because they believe Gaia pledged them to do it. This is what we were meant to do. We failed to protect her. Then let's honor her by wiping out her foe and give her a chance to re to, to heal and get up. She's fallen, but not gone yet to sort of that mindset. They're kind of hammering home. And that's, that's just how it is now. Love it or hate it. And, and Mike, he didn't like it, right? I'm going to say that. Um, because the Cult of Fenris adds that purity vision back. They brought it back with the, what was bad in the Sword of Heimdall that everybody had an issue with. They bring back and make a proper villain out of it, and they do it in the Cult of Fenris, right? And to tell you what they say, just out of the books, out of the book, they flat out say that the Cult of Fenris camp decided that all Guru had fallen, 
and only the cult's pure vision could serve Gaia. After a torturously long and bloody duel among champions of the tribes of the Grand Moon, renowned Guru solemnly declared a deadlock, and the cult defenders abandoned the tribes to their fates, pledging their, their basically, they condemned the gathering. We'll just put it that way. They just didn't agree with them. Now, that right there tells you that they now have this pure view, and they're going around to do just that. And even they say that the cult defenders and what they want is to fight the worm, but it's Guru see the presence of the worm in everything. As a result, they effectively seek their own version of Valhalla. Gaia is under a doom, and all anyone can do is fight while infinitely screaming her name until they fall, and then ideally, fight on a magnificent spirit line, basically a halo version of a glorious, pure opposition to the worm that will cause them to ascend and be renowned forever as a legendary blah, 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 blah. Flat out, Valhalla. So what does that tell us? They stole the idea of the Cult of Fenris from the previous edition, wrecked the name and what they were and what they stood for, and completely ignored the fact that that tribe would have devoured the Cult of Fenris the same as they did the Sword of Heimdall. They just would have killed them too and called it a day. Um, but the writers viewed that they needed a villain and that's what they targeted. Do I agree with it? No, I don't agree with it. In fact, I think it's dumb. Um, what I mean by dumb, it is short sighted. It is literally doing it the wrong way. And I'm saying that because there was a right way to do it. To make them a villain is to take the entirety of the tribe. And the entirety of the tribe had already set a precedence of doing what? They were taking Cairns away from those they considered weak and saying, we'll protect it for you. They didn't force those people to leave. They simply said, it's not yours anymore. And that's out of the book. It's, but what do you do if you're a defeated tribe and someone just you know, beats your ass? You don't live with your oppressors. You take off. And by the way, oppressor is a tough term, but basically, the way the Fenders view it, your way sucked, you weren't strong enough under, and we came in and took your cairn. So now, we're setting up discipline at this cairn. This is the new law. If you don't like it, you can leave. And they left, those who were defeated. And because they left, sour grapes. That's how that is. And they saw them as an enemy. Well, well the Get did that enough, and they did it in an era of manifest destiny already going through the Americas. And because of that, they, they, they seem like wormcomers, as they were called. Now, what you got to think about is, is that it was very easy to write that into the story of this new apocalypse by simply saying the Get of Fenris, with Gaia now having the idea that Gaia has died, that they had failed. How do they face that failure? And the Get of Fenris easily could have turned on the tribes. They wouldn't have had a moot. They just would have been going at other tribes, trying to force them to follow what they do. Because agreeing to a kumbaya... Um, we all agree to a conclave-based council and all that other stuff. We're, we're respecting the leadership of the Silver Fangs, although we do not think they lead anyone to greatness. We just think they're the leader that we need right now because it seems things are going well. But what happens when that tribe and all the tribes have a meeting? They say, Gaia is dead. And we realize we don't even know if we, we, we've just been following Gaia because that's tradition. But how long is she being dead or is she just dying? What are we doing? Well, what would that change to the leadership of the Get? To a pragmatic tribe based on strength, which you're admitting is weakness, which you're admitting is that you want to stop and you want to quit your purpose. Well, that's not going to go for a tribe of strength. And now you have a villain, not through competition, but they're stepping up their game to force you to do what they do. So it's a forced conversion. Silver Fangs get ready to be get a Fenris. Oh, no, they get her attacking our Cairns again. This time, they're not letting you leave. You become get or you become dead because they're not going to let the enemy gain another werewolf. Because they've decided that your mentalities and your way of life is weak. It has weakened us and it opens the worm to it 
We found a way through purity, duty, and sticking to what you were told you must do and what you were born to do. That's scary. They even have a term for that thinking in this book. It's called hog loss, which is number two point Mike did have a hard time with. Now, hog loss is a fanaticism. It's a state of mind that a world can get into where they believe the ends justify the means no matter what. That in all things, they're going to pursue an ends justify the means mentality. And whoever gets hurt or killed is collateral damage. So be it. It's a dangerous mindset to be in. And they cite examples for it, but I just gave you a big one. So we're just going to leave it at that. Um, but this hog loss and the cult of Fenris and saying that the cult of Fenris is suffering the hog loss is an understatement. You, you kind of get what they're getting at. It's just the story of how they're going to get to get a Fenris out of the way. That's, that's one thing. They wanna, they, they're rebooting the material and they're saying they're not in the way anymore. We have to rely on these other tribes, which probably have more interest. And they have ways to shake and, and open them up and change them as well. I'm not going to go through all the different tribes because there are people who really hate name changes. I don't feel that way, but you know who you are. And there are some additions that just, well, let me explain it this much. Your Wendigo argument, your Tena argument, and Little Brother, Big Brother, and all that other change, why they change it is because, let's be honest, they didn't change it based on the fact that the tribes were um, poorly written or anything like that. For their day, for their era, for where it was, that's fine. But when you think of a reboot, things have to change and there needs to be an update. And what would be the update? They did not feel comfortable. They couldn't have felt comfortable facing the fact that they're going to suddenly just remove Native American aspects from these tribes. It's just it's not what they wanted to do. But then they wanted to make sure that if they did make it a Native thing, then they wanted to have, they wanted to get more in depth. So they did their thing. They did their homework. They saw what they had. And it, and it wasn't meeting the mark exactly. Because it was a bit too much. Because you have an audience that dominantly isn't Native American that appreciates this material. And they knew that. So how do you answer your audience, the the reboot view, and understanding that the spiritual world is not something to... Oh, I should explain that. Amongst the Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, not just Native Americans, because I want to point that out. Um, I'm often insulted when I hear people talk about uh, that Native Americans kind of own Indigenous. They, They don't own it. In fact, every continent has a version of it. All right. And and Africa, definitely. And so why why I say that is because it's every tribe had an animistic understanding of nature and a bond with the spirits and their ancestors. And I've never I've never heard I've heard Native American claiming white guys stand up and say and cry about it. I have never heard somebody I would respect as being 100 percent Native American say anything but this. Phrases like you can't own the land. And would stare at you blankly that you are trying to tell them about. In other words, why does this rate on your life so much? To, to me, in my life experiences, every Native American, I've met several Native American people. They have always been that, that the, it's interesting how much stress and strife folks put on what they are. And they don't know it because you can't know it because you're not in it. And if you're not in it now and active, then what, what do you know about it? You know, and are are we telling you you can't do it? No, it's a free country. Do what you will. Right. That's every one of them. You're supposed to live your life. But to me, they're trying to teach you a lesson right then, aren't they? Worry about it. Don't worry about it. But that you you're you shouldn't worry about it because that taxes yourself unnecessarily. Like, why do that? It wastes your energy. So that's the only purpose I heard. But then here we have a company and fans in an uproar about fiction, about fiction. 
about stuff that isn't real. It's made up. We know it's made up. We paid our dollars for it to be made up. It only exists because people paid for it. And it's complete flubbery. None of it's real. So why are we so bad of shape? It's all inspired material like comic books. That's why the tribe books were written with a comic book in the middle or in the beginning, usually to help you understand it better and to like it a lot more. It's the medium they chose to go through. I digress. But why on the native stuff is because if you believe the Wendigo should be a tribe that has written constantly with never an update, then you don't get the Wendigo. They had to do something. But what's that, what is that something they're going to do? And that's exactly what the, what the company said. We're not about to write how the Wendigo decided to go on a warpath, stand up, and take over a third of the continental United States through werewolfism. However, that would have worked out. And that they're, they're and, excuse me, excuse me, all of Canada and a third of the United States and, and go to war like that and say, we're now here. Reason being is because they rationalized the Wendigo would know that's not the way to go. That would be warring on Gaia. That would be causing further bloodshed and strengthening of the worm. That's not the way to do it. And how would they know that's not the way to do it? No matter how angry they are, they were more than spiritual enough to get that. That's what their frustration is. That's what their frustration is. So, okay, how do we... It's a tribe written about frustration and chains are tied. Okay. How do we reboot that? How do we update that? Well, what if we get rid of that frustration point and that? Not completely but make it to where it's not so much a responsibility of the player who would come into this tribe to carry all that, but focus it more on werewolf-based things. And how do we make it unique enough to where they're different? And so in here is their take on that. Well, you don't see Lieutenant? Same reason. Same reason, right? It's what do you do? And at its core, what are the Lieutenant and what are the Wendigo? Well, they're just two different totems of what feels as the same tribe. Everyone's felt that. I felt that. Include the Croatin if you like. But that's why the, you, you, you get this. Why do you say it's younger brother and older brother and middle brother? Oh, because you're cool and you're using a native term and you don't know what that means other than the fact that it's not a native term. I have a younger brother and I would be the older brother, but I am the middle sibling because I have an older sister. That's that's not a native. Th- you get what I'm saying? Like, like, stop smelling your own bullshit. Like, just realize what it is. That's how the tribes are broken out. And you can make it sound cooler. It sounds more, I don't know what you want to call that, indigenous speak. I don't call it indigenous speak. I call it somebody trying to sound more important than they are, straight up. It's, it's great. But they're all native. That's my point. Wendigo, Utena, Croatan, they're all native. One tribe group died, right? But an entire tribe died to fight, face off against a, a worm entity that was powerful, made the sacrifice, leaving two. Those two call themselves whatever they call themselves. But the fact is there are two different ways of seeing how they were in that split. That's what made them two different tribes, two different approaches to what's going on. One more spiritual, the other one more combative. That's the difference, but they were virtually the same. And that's what they said in a reboot. That's not really enough of a difference to have a whole tribe on its own, make them one tribe and maybe a camp difference, maybe a different way to look at it, but we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what we can do with it. And they have their version. Um, I'm perfectly neutral with that. But why I bring that up is because that's why I've been hearing a lot of folks and I get to record this and this is my official take on it, that that's stop doing that. You're literally damaging your ability to see this with fresh eyes to even get that, even give it a chance at being better than what you had. That said, I need to add, I am a fan of the Wendigo. That's that's actually one of my favorite tribes. Um, and I like the Utena as they are right in the oldest stuff. It's they're They're great the way they were written. I love Bane Tenders. I, th- I think they're fantastic. Um, none of that's in here, though. And there's reasons for it, because your, your umbra has changed. But 
let's go over the fact that why is everything so different? Well, the setting is called the Age of Apocalypse, right? War, famine, pestilence, death, and apocalypse. However, an apocalypse is also a new beginning. Now, I'll let them, the reading comes across as a gothic romance, incredibly dire. Uh, the world ends not with a bang, but with a sonorous, doleful howl. And more writing of how dark and, oh, it's just so terrible and exhausting to be in the world. And, oh, it's, uh, well, because they want to paint a frustration to the reader. I just don't think they should have frustrated you to read it. (laughs) That's an important distinction. The more I read it, the more I was like, I get the point. Can we get to the material? And, but the book is constantly doing that. It's trying to make the point of when will you rage should be now. The age of apocalypse is now. You rage now. You rage constantly. You rage against the dying of the light. That's what they want you to do. However, your enemy comes on all sides when it chooses to. So I want you to think about this. It's an important thing and distinguishing factor. War is only war when there are two opposing sides clashing in the middle and either one of them can win. That is the interesting time to be in war. But what happens when one side wins? And the other is in that hell. And it is a hell. Anybody who survives the war on the losing side, welcome to hell. The very worst of of human beings, of what power does, you're going to see firsthand. And that's what all your perception is going to be. It's just how terrible it is. Nothing's good. You lost. I can't think of a greater depression. I can't think of a greater shock. I can't think of a greater problem than that. You're, you're going to be faced with a lot going through it. And that's what they want you to get out of the book. Right? Uh, mythology has been as the vanguard against the world's ruination is what the world should have, should have been doing. And as guys defenders, their role was to call that which would threaten their world mother uh, to avert the apocalypse. But they failed. So you're now one of the group. You know, and it's saying, what song will your pack howl of your accomplishments at the end of the world? So the clear purpose they have is that werewolves antagonists have power, whether that of an oil industry executive in the in the bespoke suit lording over the 40th floor boardroom or the cult of Fenris terror that has reduced the refugee camp quaky to quaking fear. The player characters break those antagonists ill claimed power. That's their purpose. Their purpose is to now be the fly in the ointment of those who have won. I'll repeat that. Werewolf, the apocalypse, the reboot, this book is teaching you to be the now terrorist to those who have won. The Pentex group has won. Uh, the Black Sparrow Dancers have won. The Worm has won, is in ascendance. The Weaver's in ascendance. Your job as your werewolf players is to wreak havoc on them and, and tear them down, take them out, do whatever you can to ruin them and ascend. Is this book for you? You be the judge. Because it's not two warring factions in the middle trying to figure out who's going to win. This is a side is one, clearly, and you're the ones who have lost. But how are you going to go out? You're the guerrilla warfare now. You're the terrorists, the echo terrorists, or whatever you want to call it. That's what they do. Now, what counts as an environmental apocalypse? Because that's really what it's going at. If, if your purpose is to go out those entities, then where's the environment coming and why so much pull? Well, as they give distinctions to, they say that humankind is responsible for the choices it makes and for the outsized effect those decisions have upon Gaia, who, who they don't perceive as such. So what that means is they don't see Gaia the way Gaia is, 
right? And, you know, the earth is the earth, but they don't necessarily see her as just the earth, right? That's the, that's the difference of it. And that's the point. You got to make that distinguishing thing. But the ongoing environmental apocalypse that defines world setting and conflict is, is just that. It's what the humans have done to it. You know, companies aren't themselves bad by definition, as they go on to say, but companies represent one approach to large-scale cooperation. Even accumulations of capital aren't inherently bad so long as they're put to positive use. So, interesting, right? But jeopardizing the well-being of life from here onward for the sake of personal profit, that now constitutes the environmental apocalypse the world see the world facing. So it's an emotional issue, and that's, and that's why it's front and center for the werewolves, because it's how much money do you need? You know, how much is enough? But the bottom line is, is humans are responsible for their own actions and choices. They're the ones who brought it here. However, you were the one. The werewolves were the ones who were supposed to stop the humans. They were the ones put here to curb their excess and didn't, and here we are. But at the same time, the werewolves are beginning to question that. Were we ever here to do that? I mean, allegedly, Gaia created a whole bunch of shifters to do a whole bunch of things. Right? That's what, that's what the lore is now. It's like, there's a whole bunch of us, and there it is. If that's the case, then all of us have failed in our own right, or have we all lived to the purpose of whatever Gaia is? It makes more sense that we can't thwart a god. We can't do what we're not supposed to do. That's where the argument in world is now. The emotional issue is shifted to in this apocalypse. It's to say that Gaia was meant to die, or the Earth was meant to get this way, or this is what had to happen, but then why are we still being born, or what's our purpose here? And we've decided it's to ascend. Do what we got to do. Interesting, isn't it? Because why? Wow, that's a dark, dark setting. Um, but the umbra's cooler, at least. I can give you that. The number is both familiar and entirely alien as we step away from that, uh, that thought process there for the setting. Um, why I like the umber here is that the umber is something to explore. It gives an idea of like space. While we always like the, the beginning of like Star Trek, I think started was in space, the final frontier. Yeah, that is. These are the voyages of the USS Enterprise, whatever nonsense that was. Why you always paid attention to that narration and because it, it set the tone and the mood of what you were about to watch. That space is exploring to explore is excitement. Excitement exceeds to drama. Drama is necessary to live through to grow your characters you know and love to watch. That's what it is. And, and you need to be an uncaring God not to get into that. So what that means is to enjoy it, is to, is to empathize with it, to feel you're part of the crew and to go through what they go through. What we have here in, in this book is that the Umbra has that same familiar and entirely alien feel that it's supposed to have. For instance, the examples they give is in the Umbra, a cobalt mine and the physical world may appear as a horrific scar in the Umbra. A city might appear from far away as a livid lesion teeming with maggots. The city itself might be in the Umbra. Spiritual maggots are on a dying carcass. And we don't know what that is or why. I think of Detroit when I see that. You hear me say that a lot about Detroit because in media, they've beat up Detroit as this horrible, terrible place. And, you know... That's because its infrastructure is failing, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I got friends who live near Detroit or in Detroit, and they're like, it's not all that. It's not what the crow decided Detroit is. It certainly isn't uh, a living hell as others propose it is. Everything else, sure. Corruption, violence, yeah, you got us. But things can improve. But how might the umber reflect that image? And to me, I think of a smiling, happy, living, throbbing, Entity. So it might be that the city of Detroit would look like a giant organ pulsing in the shape of a city. 
but the maggots feed on it constantly and incessantly all over it. And it gives the feel of what the city is. But you don't see that. No matter what angle you look at Detroit at, you don't see the maggots in the front. You see it behind it, crawling all over it. And it just takes a minute to see it. And that's what it looks like in the Umbra. But what happens if you got close to that city and you got a part of it? Yes, those spirits are real. Yes, they have a life. And, and you are dealing in the Umbra with what those spirits are now. So it might not be an idea to just run in, run at Detroit from the, from the Umbra is what they're saying. And so on and so forth. But it does this with everything. You know, mountaintops look different. Your home and your house, if it's spiritual connections there, could be different. Why is that? Well, the Umbra now is something that is both the shadow of the physical world and also an emotional representation of what all is in that world. As an animistic culture, Werewolf the Apocalypse is also an animistic game, is what it comes down to. Because it's a game from how the werewolves see it, their perspective. And accordingly, any emotional or spiritual thing that happens will have a reflection in the Umbra to some degree. And sometimes it won't. It just depends on what the impact is to that moment. Now, what constitutes a spiritual or emotional impact? When those emotions are not dealt with. That's the key distinction. Let's say I had a really good day, and my day is amazing, and I go through it all and everything else, but someone stabbed somebody I loved, and it's terrible, and, I'm, and I wasn't there, and I have all these regrets, and I have all these issues. Okay, I'm sitting here with an issue that I couldn't help my loved one, or I wasn't there at the time it happened, there's nothing I could do about it now. That frustration, that emotional boulder on my shoulder is there, and I can't I have a problem with it. The umbra is what reflects that frustration, that pain that anguish, that want, that honorable thing, that whatever is in me to do better, it, it can create whatever it's going to decide is the greatest thing that's there. It's a reflection of it. The reason that is, is because the umbra seems to be the reflection of the real world. The real world begets the umbra. As it said, humans are super important because it definitely does seem that the umbra came to life when humans came on stage. The physical world, the spiritual world were one until the humans were here. And then it just seems that whatever the humans feel and by default Peru, because they want to, you know, they're of both worlds, this shaped the environment. But the wolves don't exactly remember a time when humans weren't there. That's a contested point as well. They assume there was a time, but it doesn't make sense. They're beings of two worlds. Why would that be the case? So they, they, they don't remember it. So therefore, everyone contributes to this umbra as the world see it. Every living thing of sentience that could feel deep emotion and whatnot, that's what is reflected in the umbra. It's unpredictable. It's fatalistic to call it dreams, because they're not, although emotions can be interpreted as dreams and be inspiring. That's what makes it so intriguing. That's also what makes it so dangerous. The umbra is also something they can't just go to anymore. They remove that from the werewolf. They cannot just sidestep. They, they have a process called sidestepping, but it's a ritual they have to undergo with, and they learn to do that enables them to go across, admitting that it used to be a lot easier for them to get across. They used to be able to do that, but the gauntlet has gotten worse with the death of Gaia. The weaver has only gotten stronger in that separation that stops them from having anything. That's, that's, what, that's where you're at. And the werewolves now had to figure out a way to get across. And, and they did, and they're able to. A lot easier than other, other entities, but that's where they're at. However... They also add that the way the werewolves see things in the Umbra is going to be vastly different than the way other Supernals see it. And that is because to the werewolves, they cannot see it the way they do because they are stealing their way 
into the spiritual world, and they don't have the capacity to see the spirit world as is. Let me repeat that. As dual-natured beings of spirit and the physical world, how the werewolves see the umbra and respect it, and they know how dangerous it is, they know that these pre-packaged labeling that a vampire who thinks it's interacting with the spirit world or a group of uh, mages who had to learn to get across there and learn the powers to let them do that, they're going to see it differently. You know, with the mages having more of an idea of what the werewolves see than what anybody else does. But they weren't born of it. By them not being born of it, they have no idea. Now, before anyone jumps on me, mages are born and get awakened and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mages, calm down. I am not saying that you are incorrect and the worlds are superior. What I'm saying is from the world perspective of this book, they see what you see is not, not the way it is. And it can't be. But this also serves as to why, because of the very nature of the Umbra, it is different. Because the Umbra seems to be what you understand it to be. But as a collective. So to the human mind, the Umbra, for each and every person coming in, these spirits put on a show. It's going to be what Bob thinks it is in, in a lot of ways. Initially. Let me, let me repeat that. They give, a cool, they give a cool aspect of it in the book. Where it's a very spiritual, almost philosophical representation, right? The Umbra is but a reflection. So thought and emotion happens first, and then from the and then it kind of cas- consider that the light source, and it cascades across the physical world. But the umbra reflects both of them into one entity. What does that mean? It means your thought and emotion happens right wherever that is, and it's in the mind, but you feel it. It's in you, and you can see it. But then you have the physical world where you're on, and they combine and converge, and the umbra receives that message. You basically you place your order, and the actors that is the spirit world come together from the source of the triad to represent what that ideal might be if the thought and emotion is strong enough. However, most of your thoughts and whatever aren't that strong. And yet there's another way to look at it too. There's a, here's where the argument. It is said that the thought and emotion has to be great enough to impact the physical world. And if it is, it has a dominant, very focused and dominant impact on the umbra. Let me make this make sense. So if Bob's just happy, giddy, cool ideas, inspiration hits, but it's not really going to change anything in the physical world, it's just how I feel, that broadens its impact on the, on, on the umbra. In other words, it takes the idea and stretches it out. Everybody might get a part of it as, oh, that feels good. Bob's having a good day, so this little sprite's happy and his bubbling brook's a little more brighter and whatever. Not much of an impact, but that's, that's where it is, and, and, it, and its reflection is there. However, we drop a nuclear bomb. That very thought and emotion of Oppenheimer, and we know it's going to change the physical world, the impact to the Umbra is a narrowed focus of a powerful entity being born. There will be a, a representation, a response of epic proportion there based on that. That's, that's how that is seen. And what's cool is it's subject to the storyteller and players. We all can talk. It opens the narration on the whole table of what the Umbra would be. And it's not up to just the storyteller to follow a spirit book that says this world is this and this world is that. In fact, that might not even be true at all. You, wherever you go to in the Umbra now is a very dangerous undertaking because the Umbra, you don't know what you're colliding with and you don't know what you're getting into. The theurge becomes a super focused role now. It has a purpose. All the werewolves team up and work with the theurge to see it done. It's no longer just a person who can heal you or dump gnosis into a power or whatever it is. It, it is somebody who has to understand intimately 
how the spirits are going to react and to be fearful of it. The theorist has a broad purpose that they, they no longer can guarantee that the eagle spirit they were talking to or the falcon spirit they were talking to is necessarily going to be the same way every time. We don't know what thought or emotion beget them. We don't know what we're getting in this area. We have to investigate and be certain. And the theorist does that by encountering, interacting, and dealing the most with spirits. That's their auspice. That's what they get to do. The pack helps in this regard. All the rules have more importance. In V5 rules, social damage is a thing. Philodox is super important automatically. The Ragabash is more than just an assassin now. That social damage is all good. And that's here, baby. It, that, that's going to be an advantage. Your, your uh, Galliard is important because renown is. If the way to ascend is to have good renown, then I don't need to go further with the Galliard other than let you know. That's the person to get with to make sure you're told in a right light that you're represented well, or that sets you straight about what else you need to do to do even greater things. That's the, that's the over-under of the auspices, and to that it does very well. It does well to say that the animistic role um, of the Umbra, it may, it may help to use a metaphor, right? And if the physical world is an object and the Umbra is a shadow, what's causing the illumination that results in the shadow? And that's how it is. And they give that. That's to kind of tie all that together. I didn't want to leave without that quote. I took it for a reason to help you chew on that a bit. Um, that said, areas of true spiritual significance and whatnot can warp the surroundings. And what I mean by warp, they give ideas to the storyteller that there's no true way to understand the Umbra. It is itself at once a perception and a way of perceiving and not inherently true. That's actually really cool. What does that mean to some of you might be confused? And I've heard some people already say they're a bit confused about getting the book and reading and not getting that. If the umbra is itself at once a perception, how you're actually seeing it, also a way of perceiving it, that means what you bring to the umbra and how you choose to see it is a thing. If you don't know that, it's like how people view topics, how we view this topic. I'm reviewing this topic from a place of, I like it. I do, I do like the book. I just had an issue with some of the things, mainly the disclaimer and mainly the, the insult of not really updating stuff strongly enough to make a difference. However, the stuff they did update does say I've salvaged the book a bit and make it worthy of reboot or at least me to see what other material come out, which I think might be the goal. And uh, the point is, that's my way of perceiving it. Other people perceive this book as being a challenge that already with a disclaimer said, we're stealing the ideas of old. And you're going to say that that's your work and you put it in this book and you really didn't put any work in this book because the way you're choosing to go at it is we're just going to add mechanics and a little bit of bomb and maybe two or three different thing changes and that's it. And you call it work and that's not work. You didn't put in any work. You didn't provide anything new. You just provided a tool for you to get my money. And so I'm going to boycott the entire book. That's exactly. The number is itself. This book is, at, at, is itself at once a perception. And it is a perception from those who consider it a reboot and a way of perceiving, which would be how we choose to read it. Right. But that not inherently true is very true. We're both reading the same material. But where's the truth at? And the simple fact is, is that it's for us to decide as individuals. And that is exactly how one story tells the umbra. We're trying to determine what we're facing. But here's how the storyteller is encouraged to do it. You know, your players, you know, what characters they built. You also know the circumstance that they're investigating in the Umbra or why they're going in the Umbra. So when you set that scene, take that culmination of what's going on and what they're looking for, their expectations and the reality, and somewhere in the middle is why they're out there. So you get to craft a perfect and awesome setting and scene for the worlds to actually go into. Wait a second. 
wait a second, Bob, did you just say what everybody's wanted since the inception of like Wraith or maybe fake changelings? Wait a second. Is that what you just did? What am I getting at? The draw of changelings was to go into the dreaming and to see what's worth seeing. Everybody wants to go to a place and go to an enchanting area and see what's going on. But for the storyteller creating that expectation, players are basically buying the ticket and going for the ride, but they're not necessarily telling you what to expect. They're just saying, enchant me, entertain me. I want to go do fun things. And they're running into the dreaming to find them. That's tiresome. That's tiresome. Nobody can keep that pace well. You know, eventually you're going to realize what books they're taking it from. And that's about it. What they're saying now is that in the Umbra, for the storyteller, for those players, we're all storytelling this game. And so the pack that you made and the setting they're in and stuff that's going on in the real world, every time they go into the Umbra, they're actually picking up the setting they're in and bringing that into the Umbra. And that's how, they have to, that's how the Umbra is going to be looking like to them. That's the perception of it. And its actual perception is almost irrelevant because the Umbra is going to make it based on what they choose to encounter and what their purpose is to be there in the first place. You might want to look at it is that every time you're dipping into this realm, the triad is looking into why you're there in the first place. If indeed it's the triad that influences all this. And that's what the world becomes. You are the shaper of the world you're going into, but you have no control of what shape that will take. That's a frightening perspective of dreams and nightmares meets reality. That I think is very cool. Because it frees the creativity of the storyteller. It frees the creativity of players. You'll have protagonists and you'll have antagonists. You'll have legends. You'll have things to accomplish. Now, a true legendary story can be told from playing this game to those events. And the ST had to do very little other than encourage the players to play their role and have fun with their story. Now, to add further, even the group themselves don't agree on what things perceived within the Umbra mean. But know that it is always in part shaped by its perceiver. So the guru are aware that they change what goes on in there. So what might they do to make an effect on it? And is it always guaranteed? And the answer is no. Because this reminds me of the Ghostbusters. Remember, if you, don't, if you didn't see the original Ghostbusters, you really should do it. Because they do a good example of this. When Gozer the Destroyer is supposed to take a form in this world for it to eradicate it, everyone clears their minds of all bad thoughts except for the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. And that's where you get the giant, iconic Marshmallow Man stopping New York City to come from. For a comedy, that's a great thing. But this very much is what, the, what they're talking about that the Umber can do. And the worlds are aware of it. So if the pack has to go in to find some item that they need that only the Umber has, according to lore, and they're diving in to find it, okay, then you better hope you found the good path and the good place to make it happen. Because the ST is going to hit you, ideally, with a thematic approach from thoughts of what you think you might find and thoughts of what you are going to find. And that should be very entertaining to go through. However, the umbra cannot be mapped, but must be deciphered anew each time one uh, goes into it. It changes both due to influence of the physical world and from its own strange currents. Now, to help you make sense of that, if the umbra is a torrent that's erasing itself and creating itself and redoing it, it's not to say that these places don't exist as the same. It is saying that you cannot understand what their true organization or thing of what it looks like is. Let me rephrase that. Look at the concept of religion and look at the term God. And if you know, every faction and group of person across the world venerates the God differently. Sometimes it's one God, sometimes it's multiple gods, sometimes it's the environment itself. No one can agree on anything save that there is a God-like figure or entity or power. Even the atheists don't know the answer and most of them convert on the bed when they're about to die, right? That's what it said. 
Um, they don't know. And because they don't know 100%, that's what the issue is. And that's, that's where it gets down to. So that, I think, is pretty cool that they made the umber that inside out. Now, with no universal truth, what this means is that the spiritual cosmology by which the guru understand the universe is a source of mystery. Some tales attribute the creation of werewolves to Gaia. For example, um, other legends make Luna... Um, well, other legends make Luna their creator. That's where my brain stopped at. Um, so the werewolves do have two dueling competing ideas. that They come from Luna and they come from Gaia, with Gaia typically being the more popular. Now, they also ask, is Gaia the Earth at all? Or is Gaia a greater cosmological collection of the physical and spiritual bodies? Or is Gaia just a planet? Right? It's just a thing. Just a, like a Greek word given to represent everything else. And that's it. They were the first to crack at it. Who knows? And they also say the relationship of the triad to Gaia. But, but did she birth the triad? Are they her siblings? Are they equal? What gave rise to her? You know, are they unrelated in origin or entwined? They have a whole bunch of questions here to open up your mind to the fact we can't know Gaia. We can't know the triad even. We just know the worlds had got together and decided this is what it must be. This is what's making sense. However, in saying that, they leave leeway for them to also doubt it. And that being very possible. Now, the traditional guy is written as a she, but that's, that's a bit of a misnomer. They have no idea. Right, the triad, the triad are ungendered forces of nature, as they put. That uh, they might take on a gender occasionally to some people, but again, that's that person's perception. That's what they wanted to perceive, and so they did. You know, kind of tricking themselves. So how did this come to be? The simple answer is not the, it's not the popular one. The simple answer is it's up to the person perceiving the events and things that's trying to know the unknowable. And trying to define and know the unknowable and define what can't be defined this is where you get a maddening aspect to what you're doing. It's, it's, Chita, it's Chitonic like that. It's definitely Cthulhu-based, I feel, um, just to put a spin on it, that I think is needed. You cannot know an alien world like that. Now, what are some of the facts in, the, in, the, in this world for werewolves? Number one, once a werewolf crosses in the umber, they have, a, they have a clock. There is a clock timer they have. That's represented by their willpower. Each scene a werewolf is in the umber, it costs them one willpower. When they're out of willpower, it starts causing them aggravated damage. A werewolf cannot stay in the umbra like that unless they enter at a place that can sustain them there without that effort. Pretty scary. That's where it is. If a werewolf does stay there too long and ends up being killed, what happens? Well, look, I think the easy, easy answer is that, uh, well, you're not going to like it, but I do. I certainly do. I'm going to state that up front. I know I already had some people yell at me about this. I was like, I think it's super cool. With you going into the umber, you can only go for a certain amount of time, and it can actually kill you. What I love about that is that it's dangerous. You need to have a purpose, and you can't stay there forever. And if you do, you become what's known as a starving remnant. You are something that couldn't find the meal you needed to, and you are, you are a spirit, but you're one that lives to eat other werewolves. You try to trick them when they come over. You're trying to get at their, their willpower and devour what, what energy you need in an attempt, in a fooled, a failed attempt to believe that you could still leave. Your time is done and you're now a villain, is what happens. And that's just what happens. And a starving remnant is not necessarily of the worm. It's a consequence of hubris, right? You thought you could be in there longer, whatever it is. You didn't plan. You didn't take what you need to get across to stop that. Here we are. And that's, uh, that's a fun aspect to me. That says, have a purpose, have a point, and the umber isn't meant for a long sojourn to be gone for months at a time to a year. You know, there has to be an epic level power or something at play to let you do that. And that's cool because that's a plot device. 
And you can go on those sojourns in your game if you do. And if you're using this game, you're just going to have a plot reason and a powerful uh, ability to do that. That's all it's saying. That's super cool. What I like about that is it gives a whole new spin in the Umbra and a toolkit fun for folks to dive in and get into. The, the Impergium is a thing that they mention in here, but... Hmm. There, let me put this this way. A shift of population dominance due to an evolving mankind. That's, that's, what, the, that's what happened with the Impergium. The werewolves couldn't possibly keep up curbing all the humans that were being born across the world. The humans spread across the world. There weren't enough werewolves to cover that. That's really what happened. When they went their separate way, that's what happened. The werewolves were not the guardians to stop them from being... Let me rephrase that. The werewolves may have been at one time believing their job was to stop the humans from getting out of control. But as the humans adapted and changed and, and were evolving over time, and what I mean by that is, if you think about it, how long were werewolves with humans? So whatever point that was, were we Homo erectus at that point or Homo sapien? You know what I'm saying? Like, where, where was it at? And the werewolves who were trying to stop us at this great Impergium, where were we at as humans? How primitive were we? And once we got out of what they are trying to say the werewolves felt they needed to help them survive in or whatever it is, we were at harmony with them because we were living in the wild with them and didn't know any better. But once we started to farm and live in a city and we're doing other things the werewolves could be a part of but chose not to be, because why would you live in a city if you can live in the environment as is? I myself would live in the wild if I could not have bugs gnaw my balls off and I could fight and battle most diseases and the weather didn't bother me and I'm perfectly capable lying in nature as I am anywhere else. Who wouldn't want to live in the great outdoors that way? Everybody would. But you're not going to update. You're not going to evolve. You're not going to get at this technology, which is what humans did and built. And as the humans grew and the population booms happened, they outgrew the werewolves. That's inevitable. Their impergium sort of gives light to it, where the werewolves feel that they failed. I don't think they failed. I think they were given an impossible task that they themselves imposed on themselves. And they realize that. That's what it's saying without saying it. And you need to understand that. Because how is it that uh, Gaia made you to protect the world and, and like kind of show the humans the way? To, to guardian spirit them. Okay, that's what you're supposed to do. Why would you think that meant you calling what they're doing? They were made to be fruit flies and multiply, as it said. They, they're going to do that. There's no way that their creator didn't see that. We made it to where they could reproduce a baby every nine months. Not much to do out in the wild, but hump. Right? So basically, they're going to have sex, they're going to eat, and they're going to sleep, and they're going to poop. So whatever social fun they get up to, it's all to make more of them. Because we gave them a finite life. Their life expectancy at a point was like 20 years. Or maybe 25 years, whatever that age was. And then they're born and then they're dead. So they need to be able to have kids and have a family and do all that. So they were made to do that. Problem is, once they started learning how to survive on their own, they outgrew that pacing. But how did you not know that was going to happen? And of course you knew it was. But the world was trying to think in their arrogance that uh, maybe that wasn't the purpose and that's where we failed her. But look what the humans have done to the earth. Well, as somebody quotes in this book, a werewolf, who says humans are the weaver's children? They're just part of the greater whole. It's what they do that matters. Now, that's what they're saying. They're saying the human's actions are reflecting in the spirit world. That's what killed Gaia. That's what's causing a problem. That's, what, that's where it is. That's what that speaks to to me. That's where they're doing it. And because their population is so immense, they are literally controlling what happens in the Umbra. And that is a... 
devastating aspect because they're 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 a blind god. The humans collectively don't know what they're doing. Like just imagine what Ukraine and, and Russia is creating in the umber over there, or what's happening in all the countries that are participating in various ways, debating the the livelihood and, and outcomes of that, facing another winter and the stress, the stresses and frustrations of that. What's that creating in their home where they're at? What's feeding on them? Now, someone added a comment flat out, and this must be a shifter, right? A different pharaoh talking to the werewolves that says, fuck you, your sins, your guilt, your shame, not mine. But now I have to pay your costs. Very interesting. Now, to me, I think Easy Money says it's not another shifter. You could say that. That's, a, that's a, you know, a typical. What if it's Snookaroo? And they're talking about their ancestors. This is all stuff you did. I didn't do it. Why am I paying for your sins? And now I got to. Tough thing. They get into silver weakness a bit. And uh, what they talk about is the fact that they don't know why silver damages them like it does. Why is it anathema? Now, my answer, you know, my perception is it disrupts the spirit half of them, attacking them directly. Their spiritual self. It removes the flesh anchor of the body by excising the spirit. So when they're in Krinos and that spirit side is evident, or in any form but their natural breed form, what happens is when you get hit with silver, it's forcing that power out of them directly, literally carving it out of them. That's what causes the wound. That's what the aggravated damage does. That's why when they're in their natural form, they're their breed form, they're human or, or lupus, it, it doesn't do anything to them but hurt them, as it normally would. That's, that's my take on it. However, they go on the list an exhaustive amount of things of what it can do and why. One of my favorite is, it's because they're born of Luna. It is the light of their mother directly, inherent in the blade or in the rock itself. And someone claimed that silver, it's because silver doesn't come from the Earth. It came from an asteroid up that orbited the moon, landed down, and it belongs up there. However, this silly person never studied anything with geology. Silver is indeed found on the Earth, folks. Just going to have that out there. And that's where it is. But they represent that the purity of the silver matters and all that other fun stuff. I think that's an interesting take. Brings it back to a more traditional weakness. And you can decide how that perception is going to be for you. Now, there is moon cults in this game. I should mention that, too. Um, they consist of worlds who have turned their back on Gaia and instead see themselves in service to her sister Luna. And to the cultist reasoning, if Gaia herself is dead or dying, better to leap towards the one that's still alive and to work now to, to keep her going and what that could mean all that is. Now, are the moon cults a path of wayward uh, heroes? Or is it heresy? Or are they an evolution of the werewolves role amid the apocalypse to come? That's the question. Now, the apocalypse to come is because some folks believe that even though this is the apocalypse and Gaia is dead, we haven't had that last fateful battle with the worm yet. And where this book is written, you're not going to. They've already run. They've already won. They don't need to have a gigantic battle. And it's not out of fear. Uh, fear. It's that there's no point. So interesting take. And so what they're telling you is that you can have your games from very, very different directions and, and see what it is. But let's get to a fun mechanic that we're going to end with. because I thought to, to end on a high note to um, rage economy, um, rage dice and rage economy. So what? What you have here is that uh, rage basically governs how you shape change and the way you shape change and how long you can stay shape changed. Now, I'm going to paraphrase through it. I haven't played the system to perfection yet. Screwed around with it a little bit. But basically, um, rage dice, as you have it, you're going to swap 
uh, for every point of rage, you replace it with regular dice in your dice pools. So rage dice have a similar facet. They're 10-sided die, but one and two are considered brutal die results. Now, we'll get to that. Two or more brutal results cause a brutal outcome, usually causing the test to fail unless the goal was to cause harm or damage. So what this means is that the more rage you have, the more of that wolf in you is going to work out into the role itself. In whatever capacity, this is definitely just like it is in V5 and Vampire 5th Edition, right? This, this, you could have that super result, world-damaging result, and that's what they get into. So you have a bestial success here um, or a bestial failure along the same lines. Brutal die results cannot be re-rolled by spending willpower because it's you who's doing them. You're, you're, you, this is you. This is your wolf doing it. This is what goes on. So walking around with a bunch of rage is not a good thing for you um, unless your intent is to harm. I should add that. Um, frenzy is, is interesting. Frenzy is a very scary thing. When a werewolf enters frenzy, they could be at one rage, enter frenzy, and suddenly they gain five rage. Because when you hit Krenos, it fills the five. And then basically every round you're bleeding out of this rage or spending actions to lose this rage while you're in Krenos. And that, that's it. Now, what I mean by spend is you're rolling to see if you lose a rage. It's not auto. So you would roll your rage dice every time you do something and you know, the results will determine whether or not uh, you... It's just like activating blood. That's the simplest solution. That's how the rage mechanic's going to work. Um, the cool effect is, is that that frenzy, werewolves have a risk if they can't get it in check. So their initial frenzy is to what caused them the frenzy, and they're all about ripping that apart, ruining it. However, if they don't win that next uh, willpower to kind of get a hold of themselves, they will attack anything moving that is still standing uh, against the guru in the vicinity. Now, by standing against the guru, that means standing up. That might be other guru that they know and they're with. That can happen. That's real. That's a risk to what they have going on. So frenzy isn't cool if you're around friends. Like, there needs to be a point. You need to to have a time and a place where that's what it is. They also make it to where if you, because you can bleed rage by trying to shift all the time, because you could fail and lose a rage or whatever and try try to manage it that way. But the storytellers within their rights to cause you an aggravated level of damage for shifting pointlessly. They have that mechanic in there, too. I feel that makes it interesting. I have to see how that plays out. And I think that rage definitely could be a lot of fun to have in game and to see it going. We leave the gifts and the rights for your perusal. I always feel powers is something everybody's going to let out anyway to go over. And no doubt it'll fit what they have going on. But you be the judge for that. Um, I will tell you, your forms, they add some die bonuses. But it's not the big boost that I'm used to seeing with werewolves. I haven't played with it, so I don't know. I haven't uh, done ran the campaign yet, plan to, uh, to see how that works out for players, but I, I don't get the power. Not yet. It's supposed to be a powerful, powerful thing and a terrifying thing to see a guru in that capacity, and the only thing that's terrifying you can see is a regenerative factor. It's as you've always known it. They basically regenerate guaranteed a superficial wound every round. That's just what they do. And uh, that's, that's cool. Great. But uh, I don't know. I kind of feel that just because you're a regenerating war beast, if you're going to use those terms, it should do more than get like two dice or three dice added to what's going on. There should be something more. I have that perception. I haven't seen it work in any capacity as of yet. But what I do, we'll know more about that, and so will you. Um, this, is, uh, this has been our take of this, of this book, is to kind of give you an idea of what's in it. You know, definitely give you that beginning uh, understanding of it. And I want to end by saying, um, when you read this book, keep an open mind to it. But I'm going to rem- remind you, and we'll be concise of everything I went over right here. They called a reboot, yet they took most, if not all, of their lore 
and and from the previous editions and put it in here. What they removed was anything that happened in the previous edition so far. They completely ignore it. So they basically cannibalized what we already paid for, justified putting that knowledge in here concisely. It took up most of the pages in the book to then slap a price tag on it. And all we're buying here in this reboot are different mechanics and a different way to view the Umbra. And to understand, they got rid of totems. They're now spirit patrons. And they redesigned tribes in a way that I'm not 100% a fan of. I get why they did it. But that makes this an entirely different game. And they shouldn't even have any lore pertaining to what came before. And should have went a different direction with this version of Werewolf that I think would have been, they would have hit it out of the park with. For instance, let me give you the feed forward here. I would encourage somebody, storytellers, vote authors, me, the authors of this book, to do a project since you have most of it. Give a story of what the werewolf is. Attach a mechanic to where werewolves don't breed by being born. They're bitten. Now, why do that is because that's the curse aspect. That's what made vampires and werewolves at odds. They were both created from an origin of why and what. And what was that origin? Fun part. Don't decide where the curse came from. Just know it exists. Do have a tribal structure where they, they exist all over and whatever that you can know and love, but come up with your own different ways of calling these, these organizations and what they are. There's got to be different ways to handle the curse and to mitigate it, and that because you are a cursed being, what do you do for the world to make it better? That's, that's a better take. That's something you could have went with. And you do that because for some reason, you are a spirit being. Definitely keep that of two worlds, right? A proof in animism, a shamanistic aspect. But also highlight the fact that there's, there's just werewolves. The concept of werecats and were-sharks and were-everything else, I think those should be completely spirit beings that take the form of humans that do live in the world. But that should be something that I don't know. Are they competitors? Are they not? I'll let you write the story for it. But I think that's a better approach because it gives the uniqueness to the players alone that they're werewolves and here's what they're dealing with. It gives them purpose. Their job is not to curb humanity. Their job is to curb those who would corrupt and wholly curse humanity. Should they seek a cure? I don't think there's a reason to look to seek a cure. I think once it should be there, it should be there permanent. But what are you doing with it? And then attach the fact how dangerous it is that mankind knows you exist and what can happen from that. And, you know, now there's a fear of you being hunted by hunters and that should be added there too. Why fear a werewolf being hunted? Not because the hunter could just kill the werewolf, but because that werewolf could carry the infection onto a hunter. And to be a hunter, you already have to be a being that's willing to go out, hunt, and kill, and do whatever. What happens when they give you the power to do it? You know, what comes from that? That opens up pathways and different ways of doing it. It's an entirely different game. But if you attach that Umbra and turn them in a direction where they could go to divert what that energy is and what goes on, you give them a purpose. You saddle them with some of that feel of responsibility without making them Captain Planet. I don't think humans being blamed for everything or that they're terrible and humans suck and corporations are terrible. We live in an evil time. And you, you, that was already browbeaten for interest. And it's been rehashed and redesigned to be put in such a negative way as to make it seem that now the writers are endorsing basically shitting on everything. It's a toxic writing. And they're asking you to play in that world and in that game, saying you should run around and, and do something about it. But then adding, you can't, you already failed. That, that is not a good writing, and it doesn't encourage me to want to play the game. What it says in its whole, that if I went to pitch this to somebody, you want to play a depressing, violent game where you already failed and anything you do sucks, unless it is to ascend. 
but you're basically a Viking werewolf because you're trying to get into that golden Valhalla under the same methodology. You want to play that game? Nah, I'd rather play vampire or I'd rather go play D&D where I can ascend and become a god if I do something right. That's a lot more in depth and fantastical and more fantasy than what you're proposing. I don't care how many lawns I, I, I manuse. I don't, I, don't, I don't care what trees I save and how many I plant. That shouldn't grant me into a spiritual Valhalla. I also don't care how many alleged worm entities I take out because, according to you, my perception of anything can be worm entity. And if my heart is in it, and I believe that's what it is, then the ends justify the means. But in the umbra, that could be a very real worm entity. And if I go and kill that too, then I'm okay. It's a weird feeling. There's a lot of argument to the material that could be there. And I say that's what makes it not fun. Less argument, more sides picked, get more fans wanting to play and do this. That's been our take as a company. What do you guys choose to do with the material is yours. I think that uh, there is still fun in it. And we got no choice because we bought the books. We're going to use. That's, that's the number one fact is, folks. When you pay the money for it, pay the ticket, you take the ride. So we got to play it more. We got to see into it more. And we got to see what else in whatever direction you choose to go with it. So um, we'll deal with that and we'll see what they come. And that's been our review. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www facebook.com slash 25 years vtm or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com if you would like to support us we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade